are winding down this book of 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 6. And this was a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. Um, towards the end of his life, towards the end of his time um, on this earth. And he wrote this to a young up-and-coming pastor named Timothy. And we have entitled our series through 1 Timothy, What is a Healthy Church? And the reason we did that is because that is pretty much what Paul is doing. And when Paul planted the church in Ephesus, this is where the church is that Timothy is pastoring. He planted this church some 10 to 15 years earlier. He wrote the book of Ephesians. When he wrote the book of Ephesians, he gave some big picture, some visionary doctrine to put forth and put out there. And as he did this, as he did this, um, the church went along and um, it, it, like most all churches, they hit some roadblocks, some things that were related to false teaching, some struggles within the church and interpersonal relationships, power struggles for leadership, people that are not participating in the life of the church, all of these different issues. And so Paul um, gives us in the book of 1 Timothy the reason why he wrote the book, which is always nice when it's so clear. And this is why we got the title, What is a Healthy Church? And this is, this is from chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And it says this, I've hoped to come to you soon, Paul says, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That was his purpose for writing the book, um, and it's been fun to walk through that as he got very specific. In the book of Ephesians, he stayed kind of high up, visionary kind of direction, and this book he's gotten very practical. Let's pray before we read their text for this morning. Father, um, we've already had a good portion of worship as we've come here this morning, shaking one another's hands, loving one another in that way, singing songs unto you, sharing in communion together. And now as we open your word, uh, may it transform our lives. May we not be the same as we were when we came in here. Lord, thank you for every single individual person that is here this morning. And we pray, Father, for, for each one. Uh, that you would meet them where they are and that they would walk away with a much grander picture of not only what, what and who you are, but what you're doing in the world around you and what part we have to play in that. Uh, thank you for this book and this letter of Timothy, and may we learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So follow along as I read here in verses 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It is very good to have good friends. Good friends. And, and by good friends, I'm not just talking about the friends that are always there for you and a shoulder to cry on, although that is good. 
I'm not just talking about the friends that tell you the things that you like to hear and the situations that you're in, although sometimes that might be appropriate and good. And um, we're not talking about the friends that just want to give you uh, the fluff when you might need to hear something else. When we're talking about good friends, we're talking about those kinds of friends who who know you well enough and you know that they love you, that they can be straightforward, they can be blunt, and they can tell you maybe what you need to hear but otherwise don't want to hear. And this is really one of the reasons why we, the secret missions of our growth groups, we want our growth groups to be a place where uh, true spiritual friendships are developed, where we can speak into one another's lives. Too many people today don't have friends like that, friends that will speak to their hearts But this man, Timothy, did. He had a friend like this, and his name was Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Paul sent Timothy this letter with some sound, godly counsel. A few weeks ago, just before Easter, in verses 11 and 12, we saw the counsel that he exhorted Timothy with. He said to flee, to flee anything that would not be godly, to flee anything that would cause divisions or divisiveness within the life of the church. But don't just flee it, but you also need to pursue. You need to pursue godliness. You need to pursue righteousness. But when we pursue those things, when we pursue, and I don't know if you've experienced this, when you, by God's leading, make some choices to to turn your life around or to confront some sin in your life, as soon as you make those choices, it seems like there's much opposition that that comes against you. And so Timothy says, so if that's the case, and it will be the case, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. And as you're fighting that good fight of faith, take hold, don't let go, persevere, stick to it. Stick to it for the long haul. Now, really... Some might think, well, that was a strong exhortation and encouragement and challenge from Paul to Timothy. We could just end the letter right there. We could just end it. I mean, he's already given us six full chapters of meat. Why don't we just end the chapter there? I mean, as an audience, we could sit back and say, look, the Apostle Paul has spoken directly to to Timothy. So let's just sit back and read the history books and hear how Timothy, how Timothy applied these things and um, really knocked it out of the park, but it's not like that. It's actually, it's actually never, never like that. Timothy has this friendship with Paul. Paul has this personal love and prayer for the apostle. And as he writes this letter, he appeals to him, like we just said in these verses 11 and 12. He appeals to him in an inspiring way, and it's pretty moving. It's pretty, it's pretty motivating. And you would think that that information that he just passed along would be enough It would be enough for a transformed life, but far from it. Actually, not the case. Paul knows that because Paul knows the human heart. Of course, he's being led by the Holy Spirit as he writes this, but he knows the human heart, and he knows the subtleties of the human heart and how the human heart is oftentimes vulnerable to the path of least resistance. He knows that the human heart oftentimes is full of pride and defiance, And so Timothy does something here, um, or Paul does something for Timothy here as he comes into verses 13 and 14. And what he does is he, he says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame. Basically what he's telling Tim firstly here is that I've told you what your duty is. I've told you what you need to do, Tim. But now I charge you to do it, to actually go out and do it. 
It's not just to stay stuck in your head. My youngest daughter is, and you know this if you are a parent or a grandparent, we have many of you in this room and in the overflow room, that are, that are parents of kids or grandkids that are starting softball or t-ball or baseball. It's just that time of year. If you haven't been, you should really go. Um, I had, thanks to Aslan King, because she was working the grill, one of, I, 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 as a ministry to all of the different ballparks that my daughter plays in, I make sure to eat a hamburger f- to help raise funds. And, and um, I secretly judge each one, and the best one I've had yet, and I've had them all, it was, thanks to Aslan, at our grill here. So you should just go and catch a game and support our town in that way. But I'm, um, I love this time of year, and it's so fun, especially this age that we're at, with, with uh, my daughter and her peers, and to go to practice and to watch uh, the coaches and the managers as they're, as they're teaching the kids the game. I mean, they, my daughter's this is only her second year, and she's having to learn, and the coaches at practice, the coaches will tell the kids all of the fundamentals. They'll teach them how to catch, how to throw, how to field a ground ball, They'll teach them situational awareness, meaning if there's a player on first and the ball is hit to you at third, what do you do with it? They teach them the fundamentals of how to be a good team player, how to be a good sport. All of these different things go into the the process of practicing softball, and it's fun to watch these kiddos soak up that information. It's a lot of fun. But it's all in preparation for game time. And so when the game comes, what does the coach do? What does the manager do? They rally all of the kiddos together right before the game tips off. And they get in there and they give some words of inspiration and motivation that goes something like this. Okay, we have practiced this. We have put energy. You know what to do. But now you've got to get out there and you've got to do it. You've got to go out and you've got to do it. This is a strong, inspirational charge the coach gives. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here with with Timothy. You know about these things, Timothy. You promised Timothy to keep the commandment. Now, Tim, you've got to go for it. Not just remembering it, not just believing it, not just thinking about it, not just mulling it over, but you actually got to go and you got to do it. You actually got to keep this command, Tim. Even more, keep this command and keep it in such a way that it is kept pure, that it's kept without spot, it's kept without a blame. He's really calling for a total and complete, wholehearted, unqualified, unquestioned commitment to the command here. And we see something similar from our our awesome Savior at the end of his time talking on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this in Matthew 5, 28, after he's given all of this instruction and command, he says, be perfect, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is, is perfect. And if you can just imagine, you remember his audience, it could have been pretty devastating to hear, I want you to be perfect in your life. And the standard for this is God himself. Their, their jaws probably could have fallen open or dropped because A lot of these dudes are just fishermen fresh off the boat. And here they are with this strong call from the Savior. They're untried. They're inexperienced people. They had only recently left their calling, their their vocation, and now he's telling them that they they need to be perfect like God's perfect. So here what Paul does is he lays out for Timothy his duties. He lays out the things, and that's what he's been doing in all of the book of, of Timothy. 
and he charges them to keep them. Keep these commands without spot or blame. And when he talks about this command, I don't know if you noticed that, it's singular in, in your Bible. This command, it could be a number of things. He could be talking just about what he said in verses 11 and 12. He could be talking about what he's said in all of the book of 1 Timothy, all of this letter that he's written. He could be talking about all of the message of the New Testament and the gospel message that it was to come, that has come through Christ. He could have been talking about the entirety of the Bible and all of the command that is there. But we don't need to narrow it down. It all applies similarly, just like Pastor Joe preached last week, talking about the law. Um, The standard applies to all of us. It requires obedience. It requires faith. Do it without spot or blame. Do this. And he says as another form of motivation, secondly, he says, never forget who's watching. Never forget who's, who's watching here. And Paul goes on, he mentions two amazing witnesses. The first witness is God the Father. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. I charge you in the presence of God. God's eyes, Timothy, they're, they're upon you. And who is this God? He's the one who gives life unto everything. He gives life to everything. Now, who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the God who gives life to everything. We go back to the very first page of our Bible. In the beginning, God. He's the one that created the heavens and the earth. This is where life comes from. It's a free, sovereign act of our Father. Once there was nothing, and then there was something. Nothing at one point, and then something. And that was all due to the word of God. There was no, like, universal Home Depot that God had to go to to make things work. There were no big old granite mines. Uh, There were no pet stores or um, animal laboratories where kind of, no, he just spoke it, and it came into being. Life came from the living, spoken word of God. And, And just think about the results of that. Think about the results of God as the creator and as the witness here, Timothy had been created with, as well as all of us, five senses so that he may know and take delight completely in God's creation. It's not too hard to do that on a day like today, which, by the way, props for being here. You could all be out doing yard work, you know, on a day like this when we've been in the gloom that we've been in for so long. But he had these five senses. He could have sensed and he could have seen the wrinkled, scarred, tired face of the apostle Paul. He could have smelled the fresh loaf of bread that had been placed upon the communion table. He could have actually touched the paper that the letter that Paul had written to him. He could hear the voices of the church in Ephesus as they sang praises to Jesus Christ. Praises like we see in Revelation Worthy is the lamb, worthy is the worthy is he him who was slain to receive Glory and power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and praise. He could taste the wine or the grape juice of the Lord's Supper, displaying the death of Jesus until he comes. He could have done all those things and millions more. Timothy, as well as every other Christian on the face of earth, can smell, they can touch, they can hear, they can taste creation, God's creation, as a sign and a signature, 
and it could all just be stamped with basically this, made by God. The Lord is the one who gives life to everything. And so what we see here, ultimately, how very solemn it would have been to speak to Timothy and basically say to him, do you see what I'm saying, Tim? Do you get it? Do you hear it? Do you understand the implications, Timothy, of this, of this charge? Do you know that if you do anything, it is only because God has made you a rational man and by divine illumination made you a spiritual man? Your life, Tim, has been formed and sustained by the God who made creation. Your breath is in his hands As you inhale and as you exhale, it's as if God was rhythmically pressing down and pumping on your chest. Tim, I charge you. I charge you, Timothy, in the sight of this God who has given you life and given everything life to keep this command without spot or blame. Should we not obey the God to whom we are responsible for every single thing in which we have? That is the first witness That's a pretty strong charge from Paul to Timothy. And the second witness, if that wasn't enough, is the Son, God the Son. It says, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Is Timothy aware that alongside him day after day is his Savior? Is he, is he, as he's going through the ups and downs in ministry? I mean, as I read the letter and as you kind of read between the lines and you hear Paul's teaching, you get the idea. You get the idea that he was struggling with some, some things. He was, he was having a hard time. Maybe he's forgotten that. Matthew 28, 20 says, Jesus says, And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. When the people of God were in the wilderness, back in the Old Testament, the Lord taught them this reality by putting his home, his tabernacle, right in the center of their camp. Right in the center of their camp. And when they moved, he went out before them in the symbols of the pillar and the cloud of fire. The parents would tell their kids, the Lord is with us. And as those kids got scared because the armies against the Lord were, were pressing down upon him, the parents could always say, look, he's never anywhere but right here. He is close. We cannot even get away from him if we wanted to. And I'm sure many of us, whether we're a parent or a grandparent, a big brother, big sister, aunt, uncle, we've had the experience of teaching a child to ride a bike. You go with the child, first off, you put on them training wheels, and before long, you, you raise the training wheels so that it's a little more toddle, you know, tippy, and then before long, you know, you see that they're pretty much riding without the training wheels anyway, so you just take the training wheels off, but they're not okay riding it, so you got to grab the handlebar, and you got to grab the back of the seat, and um, you start walking alongside, and they're nervous and like this, and then eventually, um, as they get more confidence, you, you take your hand off, the, off the, the handlebars, and they kind of freak out about that, and, and now you're just holding the back of the seat, and you're still walking alongside of them, and they want to make sure, and you realize that they're gaining balance, so you slowly are lightening your grip on the back of the seat, um, and you're walking alongside, and, and before long, you let go completely, and they're completely and totally on their own as they ride the bike, and you're just kind of walking alongside. And, and you're lying to them saying you're still holding on, but really, you know, they're doing it. And then um, you start running as they pedal faster and they're excited. And then, and then finally they're, they're on their own and they, they don't even realize they're so in, 
encapsulated by the bliss of riding their bike that they're just going and then they realize that you're not there and then they probably crash the bike at that point, at that point in time. Um, but, but you see, that is really the picture here. That is the picture here that this is what God does for us. He's created everything and he has not kept his distance. He is right alongside us. He's not ruling uh, the world from a remote control from heaven. Um, he is very involved. He is deeply and intimately involved in, in really all of the affairs of the world at large and every person in it, but especially for those who are his own people. Uh, they're near to him as a body is to its head, or they're as near to him as a vine is to the branch. So Timothy says to Paul, see, see who's witnessing this charge? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, and don't forget it, there are times when you will be intimidated, Timothy, by the frowns of people, by the pressures of the world. And we've seen this in the scripture, haven't we? Like the great servants like Peter. Peter found himself in a hostile world, he found himself around a fire, and shortly thereafter he was cursing and swearing and denying that he didn't know the Savior. So anyone who thinks that they're going to stand in any circumstance should be careful Otherwise, they will fall. They will fall. And why did Peter fall? Well, one of the reasons why he fell was because of the fear of man. He, he, had, he had the fear of man. He was more concerned about the thoughts and the opinions of people than he was about his Lord. And his eyes got focused there, and people stood taller than the, than the Lord in which he professed to serve. So he had the fear of man. But another reason why Peter fell was because of his self-confidence, his unhealthy self-confidence. Some people were completely, and Peter, he was, he was so blessed. He had both the gift of um, fearing man, but also the gift of being over self-confident. Normally it's one or the other for people, but he also had this unhealthy self-confidence. He said just earlier, I'm never going to leave you, even if everybody else will forsake you. And Jesus had told him that he would, but he didn't listen. Peter forgot his own weakness and the pressure and the subtlety of temptation that comes from the evil one took him down. Peter was positive that he could stand, even though the Lord had, had warned him earlier. So, so, when we are involved, like Timothy or any of us, when we're involved in the Christian life, when we're involved in, in ministry, um, we, we must never lose, never lose self, um, we must never let self-confidence grow to such a degree that we think that we're invulnerable. Peter's tragedy here was that one day he went forth on a great ego trip and then he fell down and he fell down really hard. The message from Paul to Timothy, remember, remember Christ Jesus. Don't look to men, but consider him. Remember how he brought, he was brought before Pontius Pilate. We just talked about that on Easter and he was facing death and particularly a long and cruel death. And there were many pressures facing Christ, but what did he do? What did he do? He could have used his eloquence. He could have used his, his godness to speak his way out or to rescue himself. But no, he spoke simply. He spoke plainly. He spoke faithfully. And then he also at times was, was silent. Jesus made, as Paul says, the good confession. And Timothy, Timothy, you are not possessed with the spirit of Peter. Timothy, you are Filled with the Spirit 
of Christ Jesus, because he is the faithful and true witness. So Timothy, keep this command. Keep this, take this duty, Timothy, the duty that you know so well in your head, and do it. And as you're doing that, Timothy, don't forget who's bearing witness to this. Don't forget that. Thirdly, thirdly, he says, be sustained by the author of the charge. Be sustained by the author of the charge. Who is the God in whom he is charged to serve? And who is the witness to our service? Paul lays out what is really known as one of the most beautiful doxologies in the Bible here in verses 15 and 16. And he and it kind of got it captured here in four characteristics or attributes of God. And the first one is this. God is invincible. Beyond all earthly powers, there's nothing that can get in the way. God, there it says in verse 15, God the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our world today, as you know, is plagued by junk. Plagued by many different maladies of many different kinds. There's a lot of disease. There's a lot of sickness. Physical disease. But the disease I want to talk about is the disease of the heart, the disease of the mind. And, and that disease is, is one that, that Martin Luther said is that today, and it's in many churches, many churches today, the sickness that, that people struggle, struggle with is the disease that their God is too small. Martin Luther specifically said it. They, they worship a pathetic God, a God that is no bigger than the problems in which they face or the struggles or the fears or the persecutions that are before them. They worship a, a God that is corruptible, not a God that is invincible. The God of the New Testament, it says, he is the blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that, that word blessed, it's one that you've heard a lot. It's one that's said a lot. A lot of us say that word often. How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Um, that word simply means happy. It means content. It means to be completely fulfilled. But the beautiful thing is when you take the word blessed and it's put in the context of God, what it means is this. It means that God lacks the ability to be unhappy. God lacks the ability to be frustrated. He lacks the ability to have anxiety. He is content. He is satisfied. He is at peace. He is fulfilled. He is perfectly joyful. Uh, and it's true. There are some things that please him and some things that, that don't please him. But nothing alters his heavenly contentment. And all of those of us who are followers of Christ, we enter into his calm. We enter into his calm. We can be unperturbed because he is unperturbed. And that's a beautiful thing. No matter what the trials or the persecutions one faces, a woman or a man of God can be at peace. And that peace is not based on external circumstances. When we say we're blessed, oftentimes it's be, we're really saying, well, things are going good right now in my life. I've got the, the, the kids are in line or the things are good at work or I've got my health or I've, my finances are, are stable. I've got these different things. That's not the kind of blessed it's talking about here. It's tr we are truly blessed because we're in union with the God who is blessed, is the blessed one. That's what makes us blessed. We're blessed because we are his children and we are united with him. So not only here is God's invincibility rooted in his blessedness, but it's also rooted in his sovereignty. It's our church word for he's in control. 
He's got things handled. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. This is the sure and true resting place for our hearts, the sovereignty and the control of God. Our lives are not the product of blind faith, but every detail of them was ordained from eternity and now is being ordered by the living and the eternal, the blessed, sovereign Lord of lords, King of kings. And that's exciting. That is exciting. Proverbs 16, 9 says, A man's heart decides his own way, but it's the Lord's direction in which his steps are plod. This should be a great deal of comfort to all of us, the idea that God is in charge, and he's in charge. And we are called, as Timothy was called, to keep this command without spot or to keep it without blame. So the first characteristic, God is invincible. The next one here is he is immortal. He is immortal. He's not subject to any change. Time, death, they do not affect him. Paul says he alone has immortality. I love this part. Love the, Every week there's, there's something that causes me just, I mean, there's many things, but there's too many things to focus on all of them. And this is the one where I just focused in this week. Um, the immortality of God. He has no mutations. There never was a time when God was not. There never will come a time when he has ceased or will cease to be. God has not evolved. He has not grown. He has not improved. All that he is today is all that he has ever been and all that he ever will be. He says in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord and I don't change. I'm the Lord and I don't change. He can't change. He can't get better um, he is already perfect, and being perfect, he can't change for the worse as well. He's unaffected by anything at all outside of, of himself. He is the ever-blessed, even while his son hung upon the cross. For God, improvement is impossible. It, for us, who are always looking to grow and to improve. That's, a, that's an encouraging statement, that he, he doesn't improve. Deterioration is impossible. The only thing that God can really say about himself is that I am who I am. I am who I am. Passage of time doesn't change him. His power never diminishes and his glory never goes away. And that's just a very encouraging, encouraging thought. The application or implication of this is for Timothy. As well as for us. Our security security is based on God's absolute unchanging immortality is unchanging nature and for many people and I talk to you all of the time I hear the words I can't hang on I, I just feel like I, I can't keep going but our security is not based upon our own ability to hang on we have our moods we have our ups we have our downs but God doesn't he doesn't change he doesn't go away and and here's the solid comfort. Human, human nature can't be relied upon, but God can be relied upon. However unstable I might be, however fickle my friends might prove, God cannot change. Arthur Pink said this. He said, if he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by emotion, who can confide in him? But all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same here, then, is a rock on which we may fix our feet while the mighty torrent is sweeping away everything around us. God is immortal. 
This other one might throw us for a loop. Let me explain. He's also inaccessible. God is inaccessible. He is, by this meaning, he is beyond the reach of sinful people. Paul says he dwells in unapproachable life. And just think, if you think about any men that have come into contact with him through the pages of Scripture, what that encounter was like. Listen to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. He said this. He said, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. And Peter and, and, and Paul and John, they all, when they encountered the glory of God, they saw his majesty, they saw his power, they saw his righteousness, they saw his grace, they see his wisdom, they see, they see his beauty. And what this did was cause them to fall on their face. They were humbled before him. Uh, really the greatest problem of humankind all the way back to the very beginning, our greatest problem is pride. But pride is destroyed when coming into contact with God. God glory breaks through those, those walls and those walls of pride that we put up. When we see ourselves amidst the glory of God, we, we become unraveled, we become undone. We haven't got it all together. And we haven't arrived. We are set on a journey with this new knowledge of God. And this is why our worship is so vital as a church. It's so vital, so important, because we need to be reminded, not of just our state, our lowly state, but of the grandness and the greatness and the glory of God. Hopefully that's what happens every single week when we come here. We come here maybe with our, our um, eyes on ourselves, but we see the cross behind us, or we see the banners on the wall, we see the words on the screen, and they point us they point us to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the last one here is that God is invisible. God is invisible. Verse 16, whom no one has seen or can see, it's to him be honor and might forever and ever and ever. How, how can we know God? We only know God, because he's revealed himself to us. We talked about this on Easter. That no one was without excuse. That God's revelation has been made very clear to, to all of us. A.W. Tozer says this. He says, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. And such a God cannot be seen. He can't be found outside of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus. Then that is the beginning of our knowledge of him. We have grown in our knowledge. We have the opportunity to grow in our knowledge every day, to seek him every day. And the beautiful thing here is the more we know him, the more we want to know him. The more we seek him, the more we want to seek him. The more we get to know him, the more we want to serve him. See how Paul's knowledge of God constantly moves Paul to, to serve and to love. True knowledge of the Lord is never stuck in our heads. True knowledge of him doesn't get stuck there, but quickly becomes this doxology. It's, it's one of my mentors told me, he goes, you know, Bill, you, I was asking him a question. He goes, you know, Bill, you, you know 10 times more than the things that you do. Just start doing some stuff. You know, you know what to do. Just go out and do it. 
uh, until the time comes, and this is where we're going to kind of jump back to verse um, 15, until the time comes, we are to keep the commands. Until the time, how long, my people, how long do I have to keep, keep this up? We keep it up until what we celebrated in communion this morning. We keep it up. We keep it up until Christ comes again. We keep it up through the scary times when the wackadoo in North Korea is, is coming back up in the news. We keep it up when things are difficult in life. We keep it up when there's great revivals. We keep it up when there seems to be a spiritual decline. We keep it up when there's missionary expansion in the church. Keep this command of church until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tell the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a strong charge. We will conclude this book. Um, we'll conclude the book next week. Um, you can finish reading that and start reading the book of Second Timothy. Is as good. It's something I want to do today that I'm a little bit uncomfortable doing, but we're going to do it anyway because we'll be stretched. I'll be stretched. I'd like us to stand and um, close with uh, the singing. The worship team can come up, but we're going to close with singing the doxology. I think many of you know this. If you don't, the words will be on the screen here.